So New York City, Manhattan, arguably has one of the, the greatest police departments on the face of the earth, right? I mean, NYPD is second to none. And probably one of the highest concentrations of law enforcement anywhere on the earth. And in 2019, the average response time to a 911 call of a crime reported in, in progress, so from the time the call came in to the time the first officer arrived on scene, was about eight minutes and 30 seconds, okay? Mm-hmm. That's a long time. In 2020, the average response time, the same same parameters, was 12 minutes and 17 seconds. That's a 50% increase, right? And, and again, eight minutes, 12 minutes, that's an eternity when you consider that most violent attacks are over in seven seconds, right? Mm. So the reality is you have to understand the police are there to protect you, but they cannot protect you. You're going to be on your own for a while. And that while might be a couple of minutes. It could be, depending on where you live and the resources available in your community, it could be half an hour, an hour, two hours before the police get there. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. I'm really excited to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I'm excited too. Let's just get started with kind of your career leading up to what you're doing today, you know, starting from maybe college on. Sure. Well, so I uh, graduated from a really good engineering school, went to Virginia Tech and studied political science. <laughs> so, <laughs> and as a, as a brand new businessman, I am severely regretting that decision. <laughs> but graduated from college and got on with the uh, Fairfax County Police Department, which is a suburb of Northern Virginia, which is where I grew up. I actually worked patrol in my old neighborhood, which was really an interesting experience as a you know, 22, 23-year-old. Worked there until, let's see, I was about 28. And after several attempts trying to get in, finally got hired by the FBI, got my 38th choice in field office, which is, uh, so the first, the, the first day you report to Quantico, they make you fill out a list one through 56 and a field office or is basically the main headquarters building in our largest city. So just about any city of any size in the United States has a field office and you rank them. And then about halfway through your stay at new agents training, which is 20 weeks at Quantico, you have orders night and orders night is a fairly sadistic ritual where they bring all the instructors in all of the uh, new agent trainees in. they put this big map up behind you and one at a time they have you come up and you you get an envelope with your name on it and you say hi i'm rob chadwick and i really want to go to charlotte or i really want to go back to dc and then you open it and i said and i'm going to and mine was miami which turned out to be an incredible experience for me at the time. The only thing I knew about Miami was, you know, Miami Vice and Elian Gonzalez and that kind of stuff. So Mm -hmm. 
reported to Miami, was assigned to a Colombian drug cartel squad, had a, a just amazing time there working uh, uh, sophisticated drug organization investigations with some really incredible people. And then September 11th happened, changed the Bureau completely. I was very fortunate to have been in before September 11th, really got to see the old Bureau and then how it transformed. Spent several years in Miami and then transferred back to headquarters, which is where I grew up. I wanted to come back home, spent a few years there, realized I didn't want to be home anymore and transferred to a couple other field offices. And then finally, my last couple of assignments were back in DC when uh, Bill Barr was named attorney general. I went up and helped with his security detail. The, the FBI provides a, a full-time security detail for both the attorney general and the director of the FBI. And uh, so I was on the attorney general's detail almost the entire time he was in office. And when um, my dream job came open, I was fortunate enough to get my final assignment with the FBI was as the uh, unit chief of the tactical training unit at Quantico which is our unit that trains all of our agents uh, for basically what happens on the job in the real world, you know, anywhere on the planet, sitting in Hogan's Alley, which is our big training village, and uh, just had a blast. So kind of back where I started. The unfortunate part about that assignment was, and, and actually when I was up on the protection detail, I had left my wife and youngest still back home in South Carolina so she could finish high school and so it was an unaccompanied tour. I was traveling a lot, but still had an incredible, incredible experience. I want to pick a few things apart there that are interesting. Before I ask this first question, I'll start by what's the difference between the police and the FBI? When I think of the FBI, I think, you know, these guys are there to protect us. But I've actually, now that I think about it, never truly understood the definition. Well, that's a great question. So in a manner of speaking, it's all one team, right? You have Starting at the local level, you have your state or your local, maybe town, county, sheriff. Some communities have police departments. And then at the state level, of course, you have the state police. And a lot of, a lot of states have bureaus of investigation as well. And then, of course, at the federal level, you have all sorts of different investigative and law enforcement agencies. The FBI, of course, is one of the biggest, most well-known. And I would say probably the most diverse in terms of our mission. What I like to tell young people who are interested in the FBI, what I loved about it, not only working with great people was you could truly work a 20 plus year career and completely re reinvent yourself. You know, like I said, I worked Colombian drug cartels. And then two days after September 11th, I was working national security and counterterrorism and and then I went on to work, you know, protection detail things. And I spent a lot of my career in the tactical section of the FBI. But we also have pilots and forensic examiners and underwater divers and just about anything. So the difference really is the, the funding mechanism, the jurisdiction, the crimes that we are authorized to investigate, that sort of thing. But what a lot of people don't realize about the FBI is it is a really it's a in addition to being a major investigative organization. It's also a support organization. In my unit at Quantico, our bread and butter was to travel not only around the country, but all around the world and conduct 
training for our state, local, tribal, international police partners and kind of put them through some really kind of high speed training that, that they wouldn't normally get because they generally just don't have the budget to do it. So it was really rewarding to be able to do that. And, and what did you mean by uh, I got to know the FBI pre September 11th and then there was a change? W- what does the old versus the new mean to you? So it was really incredible. The FBI pre-September 11th is what I would call a reactive or a, you know, if there were a crime had been committed, our job was to gather the evidence of that crime, figure out who did it, and then prosecute them. After September 11th, or really on September 11th, you'll recall that, that, that there was a lot of blame, like how could we have let this happen? Never, really never before had the Bureau been asked to predict so we had missed a lot of signals and you know connecting the dots and all that kind of stuff they talk about in a lot of these documentaries now but we really had to change the entire mindset and structure of the organization to go from a reactive mission to a preventive predictive mission in order to prevent another September 11th from happening and it's really done an incredible job with the believe it or not fairly limited resources that, and constraints that they've been operating under. And uh, this is like such a loaded question, but like if I think of the drug cartels in Florida, which is, is fascinating, I've, the closest I've ever gotten to any of that is probably through Netflix or something of that nature. But how are you guys, like who's receiving all the intel? How are we figuring everything out? When I think of America, and I've had friends that are Navy SEALs, and, and, but we know a lot. My buddy, I remember, is a Navy SEAL, and I'm sure this is similar to the FBI. He said, you know, if this American citizens truly knew what was really going on in a lot of places, you might not ever leave your house. And I'm not saying that as a way to scare people, but it's like I just imagine these intelligence centers like you see on TV where you just know all these little details that are hiding in plain sight. So I don't know exactly what I'm asking, but like... How is it set up in maybe that operation where you guys are getting live information 24-7? Well, and it actually, your question kind of relates to your first question, what, you know, the the difference between pre and post 9-11. So it's important to, to realize, and most people don't, prior to September 11th, the intelligence community operated under the rules that were kind of referred to as need to know, right? So if you work for a different, even United States government intelligence agency like CIA or Department of State, whoever, and I had information from the FBI through our intelligence gathering apparatus, generally it was prohibited to share amongst one another. It really just didn't happen. And then after September 11th, it became what, what is referred to now as need to share. So need to know became need to share. And you had all of these different organizations that kind of sprung up as a, as a result of some good ideas and some making it up as you go along, like the Joint Terrorism Task Forces. Now, they had existed, but they you know, obviously went on steroids after September 11th. There are all of these fusion centers and data centers. And of course, as technology evolves, we get better. But of course, our adversaries get better. There is a tremendous amount of cooperation between agencies now and, and of course, our allies. And even, even what you would consider some of our adversaries, you know, let's say Russia, for example, 
a lot of times they will cooperate with us on a matter of you know criminal behavior or like child sex trafficking or something like that. Some of our competitors on the international stage can also be huge assistance to us in it, uh, you know, because now everything is global, right? So it's um, it's not quite like you see on TV. It's never quite that sexy, but it's uh, it's getting there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When when you talk about you know global, maybe we can get to this question later. But is a lot of the risk in today's world as much violent risk as it is like cyber risk? Like if you had to weigh the two, where is more of the risk today? Is it in true violence or is it more in cyber? Well, it's an extremely violent world for sure. But the it's a, that's a hard question to answer because, you know, I don't want to diminish someone losing their life savings over the, over the internet, which is certainly a, a catastrophic event. However, in relation to losing their life or limb, obviously it's a different, different conversation. But I would say that the level of pervasiveness and sophistication of the, the hacking, the theft by, I guess, hacking or whatever the, the term would be, where these people go in and they just steal your crypto or they steal your bank account information or they steal your intellectual property. I mean, that is so difficult to combat. It's so difficult to stay ahead of that. And the other side of that is it's such a low risk for the perpetrators. They know that there's very little chance that somebody who's running a scam, you know, in the Caribbean or just offshore, wherever they're running these things, very, very little chance they're ever going to get caught. So it's a, it's a super high reward for low risk there. The actual violence, of course, is, is always going to be there. And, and that's kind of what we're concerned about, you know, with in my world is, is protecting from physical violence, which is a, a very real concern. But, you know, that is not to diminish at all the, the, the risks from cyber vulnerability, which is absolutely not my specialty. One more question kind of on, um, you know, the early days. Why is it so hard to, and I'm going to say this, I'm going to like bait you a little bit here and you're going to give me the hundred reasons why, but when I think of these big cargo ships and submarines of drugs just coming into America and tunnels being built, and we kind of know who the cartels are, business guy might say, this should be pretty easy to squash. And it's not. Why isn't it? Well, I think the bottom line is always the bottom line, right? Because there's so much money to be made. I'll, I'll give you just a, it's an anecdotal example but it'll kind of speak to the level of pervasiveness in terms of narcotics in the country. So when I was a, a brand new agent, I worked a big, back in the early 2000s, late 90s, ecstasy was the big new thing and was, was in all the clubs on South Beach. And it was just, it was, the, the trade in ecstasy was huge. And, and we were concentrating, the Bureau used to be really be heavily involved in the war on, on drugs. So... This particular case that I was involved in, again, I was just a small piece of it. We did simultaneous raids on probably 25 different properties. And I think we seized, it was something in the order of 100 to 150,000 tablets of ecstasy, which, you know, I think the street, maybe, maybe it was, I'm sorry, <laughs> 1.2 million tablets of ecstasy with a, with a street value of, of $20 a pop at the time. And uh, the next day, the price on the street hadn't moved a blip, 
hadn't even moved the needle at all. And you just took that much off the street and you're thinking, you know, how, <laughs> it, it's because it's such a lucrative, I mean, you know, I, I was listening to um, one of your earlier podcasts with the uh, former, yeah, what a great name, by the way. You know, he's, he's dead on, you know, the, the guy can, can turn $10,000 investment into $200,000 in a couple of days. I mean, it's just, you know, how do you fight that? And then, of course, you, you, you look at, okay, you have a border guard and, and certainly not disparaging these guys, but, you know, you got a border guard that's making maybe forty dollars or $50,000 in a year and a cartel can offer him that in a day. Hey, all you got to do is not search that green van when it comes through, you know? And, and if you don't do that, we're going to kill your family. So there's your choice. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I've watched a lot of Narcos and and Netflix, and I've I feel like I'm up to speed on it. But it is uh, it's like the they keep growing new heads. You can't chop them all off. It just keeps yeah. growing, and growing. It's um, too valuable. It is too valuable. That's a it's a good way to put it. The bottom line's too important. People keep innovating. Tactical training program just for a little bit. What do people learn when they go through that program? You know, what are like the core competencies that you were teaching through that program while you were doing it? So with the bureau, mm-hmm. yes. So basically, a lot of people don't realize that the vast majority of law enforcement in the world has very little training, right? So your average police academy in the United States is about twelve weeks, mm-hmm. and you have to understand that that twelve weeks is not all shooting. Right. <laughs> a very very small percentage of that is going to be actually be what we call law enforcement skills. They've got to learn how to report, write an interview and all the different things that a policeman does. So at the end of 12 weeks, they may only have, you know, 15 or 20 hours of training and really uh, not that many rounds downrange. They don't have that much time to get good at what ultimately be the the highest consequence moment in their career in in a training setting. So what we tried to do is, you know, through the resources of the federal government, bring lots of ammunition, lots of targets, lots of experience, and put these guys and girls through very realistic scenario-based training. We would kind of start initially with uh, some videos to kind of show them lessons learned, whether it was police dash cam videos or body cam videos or whatever. The first few hours were always a discussion, and then the rest was always out on the range or in a, in a house or out on the street doing teaching them how to move effectively, how to use proper cover, how to basically ensure that they have the maximum chance of going home at the end of every night, you know, how to stop a car in the middle of the night and use that car and that vehicle as good cover, how to, how to use angles because so many of these men and women out there, you know, while they're doing an amazing job, the training that they have in many, many cases is just so substandard that to be able to bring someone to the range for four or five days and have them shoot three or 4,000 rounds in a week where they haven't shot three or 4,000 rounds in 10 years, Mm. uh, you know, just to see that level of confidence in their own ability to survive what it is they're asked to do every day was, was incredibly rewarding. So we would do, we would basically start with the classroom go on to the flat range and then do some what we call combat drills where people are shooting and moving, which a lot of departments don't allow, Mm. where you're actually running around and firing a live weapon. And at the end of it, generally would culminate in a, we call a force on force exercise where 
you have a role player and you have the the officer and there's they're actually firing less than lethal but they hurt yeah <laughs> having been hit by many of them as a role player i can tell you they do hurt <laughs> but it's just so so rewarding to see these people leave there much better than they were just a few days earlier i love it before we get into what you're doing with uh with hold fast i want to round out this kind of segment on probably a well-oiled machine where maybe folks were trained and i when we talked about this i thought it was fascinating but can we talk about Augusta National for a second and, and <laughs> sure. maybe what you did there and, and maybe what you learned there? Absolutely. Well, so uh, last year I had the amazing opportunity to volunteer. Um, this was still, I was still an, uh, a bureau employee, but I took that week off. Um, I had the opportunity to go volunteer and, and help the 2021 Masters. And I had applied for a job there. They had posted a job as a in working security for the Augusta National Golf Course Club. And I was afforded the opportunity to come support that tournament. I think probably as a little bit of, of an assessment on me, but it also gave me a good window into you know what goes on there, what that job would be like, because I was very close to retirement at the time. And let me just start by saying what an incredible place and incredible people. I mean, every, most people have seen the Masters. Many of your audience may have even been there. And it is as impressive or even more so behind the scenes than it is, you know, out on the course. I was blown away by the level of professionalism. And, you know, everybody says, oh, yeah, we're committed to constant improvement. And I'm telling you, man, I've never seen anything like this. So my job for the week of the masters last year was to help the sort of the, um, the perimeter security. So I spent most of my time outside the gate. Uh -huh. And as you, you'll remember last year, we we're kind of right in the middle of COVID. We're kind of coming off the COVID lockdowns. They had basically canceled the previous masters. They held a, an iteration of it in the fall. And then this past spring and in, in 2021, they, they held a tournament. It was limited capacity, and at Augusta National, they have, they have two gates. One is your general patron's gate, and another is called the Berkman's Gate. Berkman's uh, is a kind of a complex where they have a bunch of restaurants and amenities, but it's indoors. So in order to get into the Berkman's area, you had to have, last year, you had to have two COVID tests, right? So you had to have... Uh, a 24-hour test, and you had to have a 72-hour test. You present that with your credentials to get in. And again, this place was amazing in terms of their security operation. So my job was to work with the greeters and to just kind of uh, be another set of eyes and ears. And, and the first day, they noticed that several patrons were showing up and for whatever reason, whether it was a flight delay or something had delayed them where they were outside the window of that 24 hour test, they would, they had actually set up a testing site right outside the gate for them. But again, it took probably 15, 20, 30 minutes to get, to get read. So several of these people were kind of standing around and one or two had asked, Hey, can I, you know, is there a bathroom around here? Well, the crew that I was with had been using this little bathroom that was kind of behind a hedge. <laughs> and it was, it was like an ancillary support building, which was kind of out of view, you know, and the management at Augusta recognized, all right, we've got to provide something 
So the next thing I knew, literally within 15 minutes, three carts show up. The work crew jumps out. First thing they did was cut a, uh, they, they used a sod cutter, cut a path up to the hedge, cut a beautiful arch through the hedge, put down crushed brick, and then laid down a brick pathway through this hedge right to this bathroom. And within 90 minutes, it looked like that path had been there for like 50 years. It was just, it was incredible. And, and then they were gone. And, you know, you hear stories like that. And to have witnessed it firsthand was, was an amazing experience. And it was such a, such a neat, you know, to be a very, very small cog in an operation like that was, was pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we realize how uh, fortunate we are that, you know, things like this one exist, but the the level of detail and kind of operational expertise that goes on to putting the production. I've been once and it was probably the best four days of my life. Oh yeah. There's nothing like it. It's uh, I'm not even a big golf fan and it's my favorite sporting event by far. Yeah. All right. So we've kind of set the stage. We live in a great world, but we live in a world that, you know, has its issues and you've probably seen more than most. And I think it's fascinating what you're doing now with the business that you've created. So let's start there. What is Holdfast Security Group to you and, and kind of what are you looking to achieve with this business? So one of the, if not the best thing about working for the FBI was working with the people that I got to work with. I was, I was on several different really high performing squads and then part of the, the tactical section where I was on teams got to be just super close with these people and you know probably four or five years ago as i was nearing retirement age and and for the fbi you can retire at 50 as long as you have at least 20 years of service but the other side of that is at 57 they kick you out so mm. you start entering a window and i knew that you're probably a lot more marketable at 50 than you are at 57. So I really started thinking, all right, at 50, I, I probably have to go. And, but I, I really didn't want to stop working with these people. <laughs> and so I started talking with some of my friends on the team and, you know, we're, you know, we'd go, we'd have a, whether it was a SWAT mission or arrest or something and go out the night before and kind of talking uh, through things and kicking around this idea of, of, Hey, is there, you think we could do what we do for a living, like outside the bureau? And initially we thought, well, maybe we'll do law enforcement training, right? Maybe we'll just continue teaching cops and sheriffs and which is great. But the reality is there's not a lot of money in that. Our courses were phenomenally popular and, you know, always packed, but they were free, right? Yeah. So, so pretty easy to fill when you're giving away the bullets and all that kind of stuff. So we thought, you know, things are getting a little crazy in the real world. I actually had a kind of a catalyst moment for me, which really kind of kicked things into high gear was, was sort of after the, the George Floyd riots and the defund police stuff was going on a couple of years ago. I got a call and I was at Quantico. I got a call from a very good friend of mine who was, uh, had become an extremely successful surgeon. He and his wife lived out in Ohio and were watching the television. And you remember the, um, Remember that family that was on CNN, the McCloskeys, mm -hmm. where they were standing outside this big mansion with their assault rifles confronting. I mean, it was just a, a terrible scene. But my friend calls me and says, hey, man, I'd never really thought about my 
personal security before, but things are getting kind of crazy. And I wanted to, I thought maybe I would buy a gun to defend myself. And, you know, I'm thinking this doesn't sound like my buddy, but okay. He said, I can't find a gun to buy. You can't buy one anywhere near wherever he was. So long story short, I said, look, man, I'll find you a shotgun. You can use it for hunting and home defense if you absolutely need it. But how about if I come out there and train you with it a little bit? So at least you're not a danger to yourself. So around that same time, I had been thinking about this possibility of continuing to do what I had been doing in the Bureau, working, you know, providing training. And also, uh, I used to do a lot of uh, public speaking on behalf of the Bureau for active shooter awareness stuff. I can talk about that a little bit more later. But in a nutshell, I asked my friend, Dan, I said, hey, look, man, can I, would you and your wife be my guinea pigs. I just want to come to your house, uh, you know, hang out for the weekend and, and give me an hour. I have this presentation that I don't know if it's, if it's any good or not, you know, but would you mind just being my guinea pigs? I said, sure. So that was a few weeks before I was supposed to go. In that interceding time, he called me two or three times to say, hey, look, a couple of my surgeon buddies want to come listen to this talk. Would you mind if they came? No, oh, of course. And then a couple of days later, hey, a couple of my golfing buddies and their wives want to come. And we ended up having seven or eight couples at Dan's house. And, and we just talked about personal security, you know, what's, what's actually going on right now and the realities of what's happening with the police and what's happening around the country with police response times are drastically increasing, which is not a good thing. At the same time, violent crime is skyrocketing in a lot of areas. You just had Last week, they released a report that 16 major cities in the United States set all-time high homicide rates last year. And these are all major cities. So you've got a really unsettled period in American history right now. And really, I would, I would, you know, I think this has been overused, the term unprecedented, but truly, this is unprecedented in terms of law enforcement. You know, when I got into law enforcement, 27 years ago, it never even occurred to me that I wouldn't have community support or I would be second guest doing my job. And I can tell you firsthand, based on my experience traveling all over the country with the Bureau and, and working at the street level with, with law enforcement agencies in all 50 states, law enforcement has changed. And I don't know that there's an officer out there who would disagree that at the very least, what's happening today in social media and everything else has an effect, right? You're seeing unprecedented rates of attacks on police officers or law enforcement murders are at an almost all-time high and or line of duty deaths. And I'm convinced that a lot of that is directly in relation to the hesitation that these officers are experiencing because of the doubt of support. When you're screaming to a call and in the back of your mind thinking, you know what, in the next three minutes, my entire life could be completely upended, right? Not just from a physical standpoint, like it always has been very dangerous, but from a financial standpoint, you know, I even uh, there, there are plenty of examples of officers whose lives have been completely destroyed and they've done nothing wrong. Mm. because of social media, I don't know what the term is, doxing or whatever, where 
their families are targeted. So all this to say that, that this absolutely in the back of the mind of every law enforcement officer on the street to some level. And I'm convinced, unfortunately, that it is causing our officers to delay in not just response, because one, the staffing is down. They're having a hard time filling, retaining officers. They're having a hard time recruiting officers for the academy. Just about every academy in the country is having a hard time attracting candidates. And those that they are able to attract are substandard compared to just a couple of years ago. So it's a strange time. And, you know, not to paint a picture of doom and gloom, but our whole philosophy in this company is to paint a realistic picture so that if I'm talking to you, I ju- you just want the facts so that you can make yeah. an informed decision about your security. And that's kind of what I was doing when I, when I went out to talk with Dan and, and, and his neighbors was, hey, listen, here's the reality. And here are some things that you can do to keep yourself a little more safe, some situational awareness techniques that we would use on the protection details, you know, talk about just understanding what instinct is or what intuition is, understanding what that means, and then empowering yourself to act on that. So many times people will, you know, you have that feeling, hey, something's not right here. And and there's a reason for that. It's subconscious many times, but uh, there's a great book written by Gavin DeBecker called The Gift of Fear. And if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. He talks about, you know, intuition. And there's two things that are always correct about intuition. One, it's always caused by something. And two, it's always in your best interest. So we talk about, hey, listen, don't succumb to the social or peer pressure of, hey, you know what? I think something's going on here, but no one else is doing anything about it. So I'm just going to kind of wait and see. Time is the critical element in any situation, any critical situation, right? So if you can steal back just a few seconds, you're going to put yourself in such a better position to achieve a, a more positive outcome during a crisis than if you wait and react. And, and many times uh, when that happens, people are just overcome by events. So the company is based on all of the lessons we've learned in the Bureau. You know, there's, you may have seen the show Criminal Minds. It's about the behavioral analysis unit at Quantico. And while that show is wildly inaccurate, there, there, <laughs> there, there is a BAU at Quantico and they do do some really cool things. But in one of the things they do, one of the units within that unit, they study these attacks, right? These active shooter attacks or whatever. And one of the main reasons they do that is to glean lessons learned, common denominators from the survivors. And probably the greatest common denominator of people who survive such events is that they have devoted time ahead of time to what they would do if, right? Hey, what would I do if a guy comes up to me and carjacks me? Or what do I do if I hear shots in the building? That sort of thing. Oh, man, I got so many questions. Let's just set the stage. So you are helping folks learn how to basically create best practices at home so that they can kind of guard themselves. And we're going to we're going to go back to the conversation about law and order in America after this. 
But because of the lack thereof or the current situation, it's more important than ever. So can you start with maybe some nuggets of data that's just or just some things to think about with how much of an issue there is at the home front that people should be thinking, hey, I should at least have something because like for me, I've honestly I have an alarm system and I have a gun close to my bed. But the truth is, and, and, and you got me thinking the other day when we talked, if somebody walked into my house, my kids are on the other side. of the, I honestly have no idea what I would do. I'd probably freak out for a bit. And oh, by the way, I'm such a deep sleeper that I don't think anybody could actually wake me up. So let's just kind of start there. Like, what is the problem that we're solving? And what is some data points to kind of paint the picture? So, you know, anytime, and again, I'm I'm gonna talk like I'm a real businessman here. (laughs) I've been told, hey, you gotta have a differentiator, right? What makes you different than all these other companies or whatever? And the thing that I kept coming back to is there's, there's, thousands of really good shooting schools out there, right? You go to the range and you learn how to become a tactical ninja, whatever. But what we want to focus on, and and I think what most people, if you really get down to it is, look, at the end of the day, I just want to go on with my life, right? I don't, like, I... I may feel cool running to the, going to the range with all these different accoutrement on my body with like, you know, mag holders and whatever. And, but the reality is this, if you shoot someone or if you employ violence against another person, you are almost certainly going to get sued at the minimum, right? I mean, that's a fact. Even by a robber that breaks in? Yes. Okay. And And depending on your specific jurisdiction or where you live and what the politics of your particular county or or city or whatever could be a wholly different experience. So one, the reality, we we, we try to de-romanticize the use of force, right? Right. We, We certainly, if you are, if you are faced with a situation where there is no alternative, then you must employ force and you have to understand, you know, how to do it and, and, and the best way to do it. But our emphasis is always on earliest early detection, assessment, and avoidance, right? So on the protection details, yes, we were all very well trained with firearms, but you know, the reality is if you if you have to use a firearm on a protection detail, you have failed. Like that's by definition, right? It you yeah. you have failed your mission. So you know, as a citizen, as a private citizen, the realities are this, you, you wanted some nuggets. So I'll kind of give you some statistics that'll, that'll, it should be informative. So New York City, Manhattan, arguably has one of the, the greatest police departments on the face of the earth, right? I mean, NYPD is second to none. And probably one of the highest concentrations of law enforcement anywhere on the earth. And in 2019, the average response time to a 911 call of a crime reported in, in progress, so from the time the call came in to the time the first officer arrived on scene, was about eight minutes and 30 seconds. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's a long time. In 2020, the average response time, the same, same parameters, was 12 minutes and 17 seconds. That's a 50% increase, right? And, and again, Eight minutes, 12 minutes, that's an eternity when you consider that most violent attacks are over in seven seconds. 
right? Mm. So the reality is you have to understand the police are there to protect you, but they cannot protect you. You're going to be on your own for a while. And that while might be a couple of minutes. It could be, depending on where you live and the resources available in your community, it could be half an hour, an hour, two hours before the police get there. And that critical situation is going to be resolved one way or the other. So, you know, from a home standpoint, I was glad to hear you say, you know, you've thought about it. But what we do is we try to work with people to come up with a plan, a predetermined plan, because physiologically, when you are suddenly confronted with a life-threatening situation, your almost reptilian brain takes over and you are not going to suddenly come up with this great plan. It's going to fall back to fight or flight. Uh, physiologically, we know that you know under, under life and death threat, your hearing is almost completely occluded. Your vision is narrowed. Your higher reasoning is, is out the window. You have to have come up with a plan ahead of time or you're not going to have one at all. So we work with people to develop just a simple fallback plan. So I'll give you an example. My daughter, a couple of years ago, when COVID first started and I was at Quantico, she was staying home and going to high school online by herself. And we live fairly rurally, but you know, she was nervous to stay home. And so we went through some drills. I said, okay, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. I got a little revolver, little 38 revolver, took her to the range and trained her on it. And I can tell you, she is an absolute assassin with that thing now. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> but, you know, and, and we talked about, hey, listen, you know, I felt like she was mature enough. She was a senior in high school, very mature girl, got a, a safe that she could access very quickly, but it was locked away. No one else could get to it. And you know, in the event that someone came to the door and tried to get in, she was not to go to the door. She was to run to the bedroom. In our house, we have two floors. If she were downstairs doing her, her schoolwork and this happened, her plan was to immediately go to our bedroom. There's a door security device you can buy at Walmart for 20 bucks that, that would render that door almost impassable. It's a little uh, master lock bar that goes from the doorknob to the floor and you keep it behind the door you know, when you're not using it and you could throw it on there in less, less than a second and literally render that door almost impassable. And then of course, you know, call 911 on the cell phone, open line speaker, get the gun, retreat to the bathroom. She has an egress from the bathroom if she needs to, but she also has the gun in case she's trapped. Right. So the very, very last resort is to use that gun. And then of course, if she were upstairs, right, no good plan survives first contact. So you got to have a secondary plan. So she also has a place upstairs she can go that she has access to a gun and can barricade herself and has an egress route. What's so an just egress think, route? Something where you can get out the window or get oh. out. Yeah. Get, almost like a fire escape, right? So okay. you, you don't want to, if you can avoid it, you don't want to kind of uh, paint yourself into a corner somewhere where there just is no escape. Ideally, you know, if you're going to set something up in your house, find a room that one, you could get to quickly has a pretty sturdy door and you could barricade that door very quickly with one of these devices. And I'll send you a link to that. Yeah. I don't know. If we'll put, put it on in your the website. show notes. Yeah. And it's 20 bucks, right? Uh, one of the things that we didn't want to do is get into selling like expensive alarm systems and that sort of thing. We just want to kind of share lessons learned that, that people can implement very quickly 
But I've been amazed that so few have really given much thought to what they would do if, you know, someone kicked in the door in the middle of the night. What are you going to do? You've got about three seconds before they're in your bedroom. Okay. I've got like, I kind of want to like just not quiz you, but I've just got like a thousand questions on just scenarios that you probably have answers to. But just to confirm what you just said in that one scenario, that uh, $20 device, is that already in the room that you go to or that's something that you're grabbing on the way to the room and then using it once you get in? No. So what you want to do is, and so Masterlock makes it, uh, there's several other companies that make a similar version. And in essence, it's a bar that is adjustable and it has a stopper, like a kind of a rubberized foot at the one end that goes on the ground and a, almost like a V at the top that goes under the doorknob. And so what you do is you adjust it so that it's about a 45 degree angle from the doorknob to the floor. And then you just set it behind, you know, you set it behind the door where it opens and you don't see it, but you can shut the door and throw it on there in literally one second. So my wife has one in her office. When my daughter was at, in private school, I bought one for every one of the rooms in her high school. It wasn't a big high school, yeah. but uh, yeah, the, the local hardware store worked with me and gave me a good deal. But you know, <laughs> something where you can create a very effective, hasty barricade in, in just a matter of a second, if you've thought about it ahead of time, right? Yep. All right, I'm just gonna ask some like really generic questions. And if, if there's no direct answer, you can just say that, but is there a certain time of day that if your house is going to be broken into, that people would break in? Is it usually at night when it's dark or during the day when they think you're at work or totally situational? You know, that's going to be situational, but it depends on, largely depends on what they are after, right? So most burglars are not interested in you being home. They don't want to get caught. They don't want to be interrupted. They want to break in, have unfettered access, uninterrupted access to your house, and be able to go through, you know, and steal what they want to steal and get out. I will tell you this, in the seven years I was a policeman, I worked countless burglaries, right? Well, burglary is where someone breaks into the house and with the intent to steal stuff. Mm -hmm. And I worked, I can't tell you how many I worked with really good alarm systems. Mm -hmm. I never worked a single one where there was a dog in the house. Really? Right. Any dog, right? So it's just a little noisemaker is a great deterrent. You talked about waking up out of a deep sleep. I've got a couple of noisemakers myself mm -hmm. and that's the main reason. <laughs> yeah. You know, just give me a couple seconds, man. All yeah. right? I just, I don't want to wake up with a dude over me, but yeah, a dog is a great deterrent and a great little watchdog. You know, they, as long as they're, they'll make noise and alert you, to, hey, something's, something's not right. You know, they're worth, worth their weight in gold. In terms of the time of day, it really depends. I would say most burglaries are daytime when residentially, when people are away. And then of course, commercially, they're going to be at nighttime when you're at home. Oh, that's fair. Right. Yep. yep. Do most burglars and maybe it switches, we can use residential and commercial. Do most burglars have violence as a backup when they go in? Is I'm trying to ask the question is like, do most burglars go look, if I get caught, I'm just going to run out? Or do most burglars go in going, look, violence is part of my plan if it needs to be part of my plan? You know, hard to say. And one of the mistakes we make, all of us make, is 
sort of projecting rational thought and onto someone else or c- certainly someone who's who's contemplating or actually committing a crime like that. So many times these burglars are either on something and that's the reason they're breaking into the house is to find either more of what they want or cash or something that they can pawn to buy okay. more of what they're on. So you're not dealing typically with the most rational people. They are absolutely capable of violence you know, because they don't want to get caught. You know, So to sort of project that onto a given situation is dangerous. Certainly they don't typically aren't breaking in a burglar that is, is not breaking in typically to commit violence. They just want to you know, steal something. However, it's a very dangerous road to go down when you start assuming things. Yeah, yeah. Do most burglars, and again, I'm just asking general questions and if, and if they're too general, just we can answer it however we want, but do most burglars, have, have they spent time kind of watching the house and patterns of the house for quite a while before going in? Or most people just, hey, that looks empty, I'm heading in. Hard to say. Generally, they will do some type of pattern of life. You know, and again, it's, it's really hard to say how much time they say the number one deterrents are, you know, surveillance system, lighting, evidence of activity in the house, that sort of thing. So, you know, a good, a good apparent surveillance camera, good lighting, removing shrubbery or things that could mask someone's movement close to the house, right? So a bush up against the window mm. or that would, uh, you know, landscaping that would provide cover for somebody to get up close to your house. Those sort of things are easily changed. But yeah, you know, it, it really depends. They, you know, you've got a lot of evidence to say that there is something to at least having the evidence of activity or someone being in that house as a, as a deterrent, right? Lights on a timer, that sort of thing. But of course, one of the number one causes of house fires are lights on a timer, right? So those things yeah. burn all the time. So it's a risk reward type of thing. Do, is there a certain place that burglars usually enter? Is it usually through a door? Is it usually through a window or just totally situational? Again, situational, it depends on, you know, like a screen window, super easy to slit and, you know, just open from the outside. Anything that you can do, like if you were to walk around your house right now, think about, okay, if I had to get in here, what would I do? Well, I could break this little window pane and and unlock the, the window. Well, you might want to put some security film on that particular window pane. So 3M, for example, and several other companies make a laminate that goes on your window that originally was designed for like hurricane reinforcement. But what it does is like you go to smash the window and it just won't, it'll break, but it won't give, right? Yeah. It, I mean, you, you have to really hammer it. And the last, again, the last thing a burglar wants is to make a lot of noise and attract attention. So, you know, if you had a, a ground level window that all they had to do was break the glass or slit a screen and reach in and, and unlock the, the mechanism, then you want to reinforce that, right? You could pin the windows. You could actually drill, take a drill bit and drill through the window frame and then take a little wood dowel and pin it, which makes it a lot harder to, to function the window. These are things that are super low tech, but very effective. When you are looking at your doors, especially the exterior ones, but interior too, remember that your contractor that built your house is going to use contractor grade everything, right? So the screws that hold the 
the little hinge plates in are probably only about an inch thick. Well, very simple. And, and the, the king studs that are around your door frames are at least six inches thick. So why not back all those screws out and replace them with two or three inch screws, giving you a lot more, a lot stronger door. Oh man. Okay. So do most people come in, is it usually just one or are most burglaries with maybe more than one person, maybe not to go in the house, but have somebody outside watching, or is it usually just a single person? Hard to say. I mean, that is really situationally dependent. We just had not too long ago in my neighborhood, a, a crew of uh, guys that uh, we caught them on our surveillance camera. My noisemakers didn't do their job, which pissed me off. <laughs> but uh, well, they didn't come in the house. So, but yeah. these guys, these guys broke into just about every car in the neighborhood and were looking for cash, guns, and drugs. Yeah. And unfortunately, found four or five guns in neighbors' cars. That's that's a terrible idea to leave a firearm in a car. By the way. Yeah. But you know that was a crew break-ins. On average, I would, I'm guessing here, I would say it's probably usually just one person, but certainly not to say you couldn't have more than one or somebody, a driver as a lookout or something like that, but hard to say. And, and when you're getting hired for your company, is it mainly kind of families and residential addresses wanting to secure or business owners also hiring you saying, look, if we have somebody show up here, we need a plan? Yeah. So my area of specialty in the FBI for the last 12 or 15 years has been workplace violence and active shooter response preparation. Uh, we really, we, the Bureau, really got heavily involved in that area right after the Newtown shooting. Mm. So I worked closely with a lot of companies around the country in developing response plans for workplace targeted violence situations. And now our company focuses on working with any size corporation. I just did a, it was a small financial advisor practice in Tulsa, four or five planners and several employees in a you know, nice little building, but they were concerned about, you know, just the random somebody coming off the street. So we spent a day there. And, and what I typically do is I'll come in and spend several hours, depending on the size of the building, just kind of observing the ingress, egress, just kind of the flow of things and how they operate. And typically what I will do is about lunchtime, meet with the principals, whoever the executives are, just make some preliminary recommendations. Hey, here's my observations. A couple of very inexpensive, usually very inexpensive tweaks that would greatly enhance the security of the office space, right? Mm -hmm. Limiting access to their workers. And then sometime that day, we like to do, it's about an hour long presentation, we call personal security considerations, where we just kind of go over a little bit about what we've been talking about. Hey, here's the reality. You have to understand that you're gonna be on your own for at least a little while. And here are the things you can do to make yourself safer, whether it's at work, at church, at home, anywhere, and then understanding as well what to do when law enforcement does arrive. A lot of people forget that I would argue that the moment that law enforcement arrives in a chaotic situation is arguably the most dangerous time in that crisis. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, you've, you've got to remember that this is a, 
an individual, the, the officer, whoever it is, has been dispatched to an unknown situation. They're getting at best third-hand information, right? It's like the telephone game. Yeah. Someone calls 911, goes to, to a call taker, to a dispatcher, over the radio to an officer who is then driving as fast as they can with a siren on through traffic to try to get there with very limited information. They've probably never been to the location. They don't know you. Usually the description, especially in an active shooter situation, is conflicting or wrong. So they show up and have to process absolutely everything in an instant and figure out who's a threat, who's not, sort through all that. So all of which, you know, remember that the officer is also going through tremendous amount of physical and physiological stress, right? So their heart rates up. And so not the best time to make a, an informed decision. So we talk about strategies to survive when the police arrive, which is a real thing. It's often overlooked, but something you have to have thought about ahead of time if you're ever faced with a situation like that. So we spend about an hour with all their employees. That's been super rewarding for me because I'll get calls afterwards or emails from employees who yeah. said, hey, man, that, that was really impactful. I, I went home and shared that with my kids or my family or my church. And then what we, we try to do is that day, so we'll come out, let's say we came to Fort Capital. We came out, we did an assessment at Fort Capital. We met with your team. We did a briefing. And then should you want it, we offer an in-home visit for the executive. So we actually go to the house of the executive or whoever, designated people. It could be several if you want and do the same thing, right? Do a walkthrough at the house, spend some time with the family explain, hey, you know what, this is an area in your home. If someone were to break in, this is where you want to run to. And this is what you want to have thought about ahead of time. And this is what you want to do. Because the fact is, very, very unlikely you're going to come up with this plan under duress. You have to have thought about it ahead of time. If somebody breaks in and and you said that even if somebody's inciting violence and in your house and you shoot them, it's crazy to me the even idea that they have the right to sue you. But, oh, absolutely. But they yeah. do. Yeah. How do these cases usually end up? Is it is it very much usually in favor of the owner of the property that was innocent or like what typically happens here? It is extremely location dependent and this is a it's a political hot potato. So there are many areas in this country where you have what is called a duty to retreat, mm. right? You must give way, even in your own home, to someone who's breaking in. And there are areas in the country where if they're breaking in, it has to be in a, it's crazy to read, and, and I encourage you and any of your listeners to go ahead and read the statutes for their own state and their wow. own locality. You know, there are areas where if they're, the break-in in order to justify deadly force on the part of the citizen to defend themselves, the break-in has to be after dark and it has to be in a riotous or calamitous manner. So they can't be quietly breaking into your house. They have to be busting in the door. And I mean, it's, it's crazy to read some of the language. And of course, there are other states where, you know, you have like the castle doctrine or the whatever you want to call it, where you don't have a duty to retreat. However, one of the things we also have a candid discussion about is, listen, even if you are absolutely justified 
in using a firearm to defend yourself. Understand that approximately half this country is never going to agree with you. And I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just, this is just a reality, right? There's, there's a lot of people out there who are absolutely anti-gun, who will take to the internet and do everything they can to change your life because of their political views. Again, I'm not, I don't get into the politics of it. I just want people. It just is what it is. It is what it is. In order to make a decision, you have to have all the facts. And, and here's, here's the real fact that I throw out. I used to do a lot of talks to houses of worship. My team responded to the shooting at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston a few years ago. And that was still the worst crime scene I've ever, I've ever seen. In Remind my, me again what, what happened there. So that was the African-American church, downtown Charleston, where the white supremacist was invited into this meeting. They had a prayer meeting, Bible study meeting in the basement of the church at a at Mother Emanuel AME Church. He shows up with the intent, and he, you know, he's, he's stated this openly, he was going to murder everybody there with the intent to start a race war. And so the way that incident went down, he shows up at the meeting. They welcomed him in. He sat there for almost an hour during the, the Bible study. And then at the end of the meeting, stood up and methodically began shooting everybody in the, in the building, murdered nine people. Mm. The, the heartbreaking thing about, well, one of the many heartbreaking things about that was so many of the victims were just so completely overcome with fear had clearly never considered that this would even be a possibility. And I'm not saying they should have. They're doing nothing wrong. They were in the basement of their church at a, at a prayer meeting, and this monster shows up. Well, you know, to learn from that and many other examples of people who are just physically overcome by events, we basically spread this message. Hey, listen, you have to have a plan. You have to have thought about this ahead of time or you will be overcome by events. So that's kind of one of the things that, that I've, I've been doing a lot of is talking to different religious organizations. A month after that shooting, I did a presentation here in my little town in South Carolina. We didn't advertise it. I went to my priest, I'm Episcopal, went to my priest and I said, hey, would you mind inviting some local church, uh, synagogue, mosque, it didn't matter. We're just gonna talk about the facts Basically, the title of the presentation was Situational Awareness for Houses of Worship. And I thought there might be 50 people there. And I walked into the sanctuary and there were 1,500. Oh, my gosh. It was amazing. Yeah. We did that presentation probably another dozen times around the state. I never had less than seven or 800. So I knew that there is a palpable fear and people are hungry for just the facts, right? That that particular, that first presentation, what struck me was I had a, I talked for about an hour and at the end of it, we had questions and answers and there were a hundred people lined up to ask questions. And the first 20 questions were about guns. So I yeah. knew, because uh, I hadn't talked about guns. So in subsequent presentations, I addressed them. And, and here's something I want to share with you guys, which is strikes people's, I mean, it's just, again, these are the facts. And if you were going to own a gun and you're going to employ a gun, you have to know the facts. The fact is this, the FBI maintains statistics on all law enforcement shootings in the United States. 
and has for over 50 years. So that's all police, sheriffs, FBI agents, whoever, who are involved in an adversarial shooting situation. And this statistic has remained almost constant for over 50 years. And that is the agent or the officer who shoots, most law enforcement shootings are within seven yards, so pretty close distance. And these are trained officers who have some level of training, have to qualify at least once a year. On average, they will miss 70 to 80% of the rounds they fire from 20 feet and closer. So when you think about that, those bullets are going into something or someone other than their intended target, yeah. right? And that's, and that's a policeman. So you, as a private citizen, if you make the decision to use a weapon in defense, there's a very high likelihood that at least one of those bullets, right, is going into something or someone other than your intended target. I follow that up with saying that understand that there is no good Samaritan exemption for trying to do the right thing when it comes to firearms. If you get involved, if you're not a trained first responder or credentialed like an EMT and you get involved and try to do CPR or you try to do first aid on somebody and it doesn't work or you do it wrong, you do have a good Samaritan exemption. That is not the case with firearms anywhere. And almost certainly, unless it's specifically spelled out in your insurance policies, you're not covered either through your home or your umbrella policy or anything like that for use of a firearm. So a lot of people, that, that really kind of caught a lot of people by surprise. And it, again, I'm not prying, trying to persuade or dissuade use of firearms. When there's no other alternative, then there is no other alternative. But understand that probably you're not going to be covered unless you have a dedicated insurance policy. And you're probably going to miss at least one of those bullets. And you're absolutely going to be civilly, criminally, morally responsible for those rounds, too. So these are things you have to think about ahead of time, right? Yeah. Are the folks that are against guns, from your experience, are do they just wish that guns didn't exist, period, and that's why they're against them? Or do they fall into the camp of, we know they exist, we understand how the world functions and all the, and we still don't think they should be used given all that we know? Or does it more come from this just, I wish there never was a gun to begin with? You know, hard to say. And, and again, you can't paint the entire anti-gun lobby with one brush. I, I think there yeah. are many. I mean, I'm the same way. If no guns on the planet existed, great, right? I yeah. Mean, but fact is. They're there. They're there. And the bad, you know, it, it is against the law to kill people, right? Yeah. So, and, you know, the fact is there really is no, at least currently, there's no other alternative that is really effective in an extreme situation where your life is on the line. Understand that if you have to shoot somebody, you're going to get sued. You're going to be in the news. It's going to be all over everything. Financially, it's going to be quite an ordeal for you. However, the alternative, if you don't have the ability to defend yourself and that person ends up taking your life or, right. or you know, I mean, the choice is pretty clear there. So my mission and our mission is simply to make sure that people are informed and can make those decisions in a situation where they have the luxury and the opportunity for clear 
considered thought well ahead of time before it hits the fan. Because once it hits the fan, forget it. Right. Okay. Maybe one more question that I want to spend just a little more time on just kind of the state of law and order and law enforcement in this country in general. But I think you already answered the question. What is the biggest detractor to somebody that is breaking in, whether it's a business or home? Is it a lot of noise? Like if you are locked in a room and they've heard you go into a room, do they often just leave immediately or how many people actually come to the door and and come after you? The question's really framed as like, what gets people to go away? A gunshot, a, a noise, what is it? Yeah, so if someone is break it breaks into your house and they're after you to commit harm generally i mean usually a burglar is not there to commit harm they're here here to get property but in a situation where they're there to harm you or come after your loved ones you need to be able to persuade them that it's not going to work that you are able to defend yourself and willing to defend yourself so i tell people okay i told my daughter i said all right if someone comes in and they're after you, you go in this room, you barricade the door and we, we timed it. We drilled it, it not to sound like a nut, but you know, I said, okay, you're sitting on the couch. Someone kicks in the door. You, so it took her four and a half seconds to get off the couch, get into my room, shut the door, bar the door, and then retrieve the weapon, calling 911, leaving it on a speakerphone. Now, if someone continues to try to get through that door, now you have a choice. All right. So is it, do I continue to retreat? Do I go outside? Do I go out the window? Is that possible? If it's not, you know, a lot of people say, oh, we'll shoot through the door. You know, I don't know about shooting through the door. Certainly you could, but unless you're absolutely certain of what's on the other side of that door, you could put a round into, into an area of the house that's not going to hurt anybody. Understand how your house is constructed if you fire around to at the intersection of your floor and your wall, there's a two by four nailed to the floor there, right? That right. bullet is going to go into that and they're going to hear the gunshot. Right. Hopefully that would be a, a major dissuader. I would still advocate if you can get out, get out. But again, you know, th- there's so many variables. You could have, you know, an invalid, you could have a small child or an older person who is unable to get out or whatever the case may be where you know, retreat is just not a choice. At that point, maybe you do fire around, you know, I'm not saying into the ceiling because you you don't know who's above you, maybe into the floor if you're certain of there's nobody below you. But the intersection of a wall and the floor into the door frame, you know, those are always at least two two by fours together. You know, a gunshot generally is a pretty darn good dissuader. Mm-hmm. If they keep coming, most interior doors in a house are hollow core and a bullet will go right through it. Yep. So you know, it's just things that you have to think about ahead of time and, and have come up with a plan of what am I going to do if. All right. One more question then. I said one more, but now I got one more. <laughs> I have two daughters and they live down the hall from me. I'm on the second floor, but they're down the hall from me. But it, it doesn't even matter my house. I'm a parent. I've got kids clearly in another room. And I'm woken up to a smashed window down. Let's just say it's a one-story house. Let's make it even maybe a little riskier playing field than on separate levels. Do you tell, like, as a parent, do you draw attention to yourself? Like, how do you think about that if you're trying to get to another part of the house and protect 
and not as much worried about your own well-being? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And it's one that has come up, I can't tell you how many times. And again, it comes down to that predetermined course of action. And my wife and I are in the same boat. We, when, when our kids lived here, they lived up on the second floor. We live on the first floor. If there were to be a, a break-in, without question, our plan of action is to retrieve a firearm, which is you know very close to uh, where we sleep, and immediately go to the stairs. Like you come out of our bedroom, you go down the hall a little bit, and then right up the stairs. Anybody between me and the stairs is in trouble. Like I'm not searching for where they are in the house. My priority is to get to the top of the stairs and to be able to defend where those kids are, right? And that's nothing is going to stop me from doing that. That is the predetermined curse of action. The girls knew that, hey, they stay where they are. Mom and dad are coming to them. We go up there and I'll bypass somebody, right? Hey, listen, take what you want. We've already called 911. If you try to come upstairs, I will kill you. That's it. You can have anything you want in this house, but you're not coming up these stairs. So in your case, you know, let's say a, a single floor, you simply go to the, the area where those, those kids are and you hold what you have. If you can, uh, you retreat and you get out and you uh, go to a neighbor's house or whatever it is. Or if you determine, hey, it's safer for us to just hold what we have. And a lot of times that's going to be the case. You just hold what you have and you communicate with the burglar. Listen, I've got a gun. Take whatever you want. The police are already on the way. But if you come down this hallway, I'm going to shoot you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's it's a simple plan, but you have to have committed to it ahead of time. And the burglar says, no, I'm good. I'm just going to hang out over here in the kitchen. I'm going to take a few <laughs> things and, and I'll, be on tell my, <laughs> I'll be on my way. Can you tell me where the gold is, by the way? Right. Can you tell me how to get this plasma TV off the wall? <laughs> That'd be great. No problem, man. All right. I want to end it just with, I am a, a strong believer in law and order. I think it's what makes our country so special is that we can do things in this country that you can't do in a lot of parts of the world. And it breaks my heart to, you know, clearly there's bad acts, there's bad actors, and that's because we're humans and not all policemen are, are perfect. But you've described this world of being under intense pressure. Often they do things that clearly they might regret. But when you're in the heat of the battle and someone's drawing a gun and your life's at, at harm's way, maybe you just do something that a news anchor or a news channel can make seem a lot worse than it is. Is there anything going on in the government to change the laws that protect these people that are willing to go out and put their lives on the line for us every single day? Or are we just going to kind of live in a storm for a little bit? Yeah, you know, everything in life is, is a pendulum, right? And right now, unfortunately, especially for law enforcement, we're going through a very, very hard time. And it's going to, you know, un unfortunately, reality is this is going to be a lasting effect because I told you about the attrition and then the difficulty in attracting new talent. I tell you, I've got a son who was interested in going into law enforcement. And I, I've told him, I said, you are absolutely insane yeah. to go into street level law enforcement right now where, you know, in the blink of an eye, having done nothing wrong, you could still be just destroyed financially, personally. So, I think you're already starting to see some of the communities that, you know, maybe realize, hey, you know what, maybe defunding the police is yeah. not the answer. And, you know, again, I'm not saying that, that they're not, 
you know, officers out there who have done wrong things. I did a lot of dumb things as a 20 something year old policeman and as a 30, 40 something year old agent. I mean, you're human, but you know, I, I will say this in all the years I was in law enforcement, I never once saw what I would consider either racially or a financially or a nefariously motivated action on the part of another uh, law enforcement official. Never saw it. Now, I've, again, I was very fortunate. Fairfax County is a very affluent, very forward-leaning community that had an incredible police department. Of course, the FBI has uh, incredible training and standards and all that. But I also traveled all over the country training with these men and women. And I'm telling you, I'm so proud to have been part of that community. They're, they're just the best. And, you know, the fact that they continue to go out there and do this work in the face of this onslaught of just negativity, I think what we can do as a community is just continue to quietly hold them up reassure them, you know, in small acts, just anything to reassure them that, hey, you know what, the the, the vast majority, the silent majority out there yep. still really appreciates you. That is, I think, hopefully, you're seeing the pendulum swing back, but it's going to be a while. It's yeah. going gonna, gonna to be a long while. The irony of it is a lot of the public figures that have denounced the police are the same folks that have bodyguards and oh, of course. Yeah, have absolutely. Got, they're, yeah. they're fully safe. You know, that, that thing that you just said about being in Fairfax County, a fluent neighborhood. Now I'm thinking, and I won't, we don't have to call out a certain, but there's parts of this country that are, are very dangerous, the neighborhoods are. And that's two different types of cops. One that serves, you know, maybe like Beverly Hills and ones that serves maybe Compton. Are they trained differently? I mean, I can imagine if you're starting out you might not want to be assigned to Compton. Like who makes those decisions and are there different levels of training and or, I don't know, protection for folks that statistically are in harm's way, way more than other folks? Well, so I can speak for Fairfax. Okay. And again, you know, it's a, an affluent area of the country. Lots of the dot-com companies are located there. Of course, it's a seat of government, a lot yeah. of uh, government workers. But, you know, it was not unusual. So I was, my last couple of years, I was canine handler and would, and because of that was all over the county, all different areas, different patrol areas. And it was not unusual for me to be in a, a neighborhood that had three, four $5 million homes like in McLean. And then the very next call would be in a certain section or, uh, along route one where, you know, you've got some pretty drug infested gang activity, that sort of thing. So it really depends on the community. It really depends on what the availability and resources are. Generally, your officer is your officer. Whatever that community is, they are equipped the same, unless, of course, they're on a SWAT team, which is special weapons and, and tactics. But typically, your patrolman is simply you know, a person that's out there in a police car with a uniform and a radio and a pistol. And the pistol is, is really for self-defense. Pistol is a terrible weapon offensively. <laughs> That's yeah. a whole nother ball game, but uh, it's a can of mace and really just that radio. So the, what they do every day in, in some of these areas is absolutely amazing to me It is with the level of relatively low level in many cases of training that they get. Yeah. 
All right, Rob, thank you for your service. It blows my mind, the folks that'll go out of their way and live their life to protect. And it's what made has made this country great. I think it's fascinating what you're doing with your company. Yeah, it's unbelievable how just like you said, little tweaks here and there and a few seconds and a plan can change lives and change the direction of a family. So thanks for spending time with me today. This was awesome. Oh, thanks so much for the opportunity. I'm a big fan of the podcast and uh, kind of weird to think that I'll be on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.